You are listening to the IMN podcast produced by the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. We've asked members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to share how their lives have been blessed by living the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Savior's request, come follow me, they have all responded, I am in. Kim Haskell is a filmmaker, tinkerer, and husband from right here in Boise, Idaho. Kim was born with cystic fibrosis. When he was diagnosed, his parents were told he wouldn't live to see his 18th birthday. 28 years later, he is still fighting, balancing his health, business, and faith. He has seen fellow friends lose their battles with CF. Kim has also lived to witness a modern-day miracle. He will share his stories, testimony, and miracle with us. You will not want to miss this episode. So I'm super excited to be here with you guys and to get to share a little bit of the the struggles, but also the miracles that I've had in my life. And there have been very, very many um, to the point where it's kind of my thing, right? If you, if you could summarize me in a, a couple sentences or less, uh, a miracle would probably pop up in all of those sentences. Um, I was born with a, an illness, a, a, a chronic illness called cystic fibrosis. And to give you a brief overview of how cystic fibrosis works at kind of a biological level. So in your body, uh, particularly in the cells of your body that produce mucus, um, your body uses salt, which is NaCl, potassium and chlorine, to pull water in different areas. If you ever put salt on a slug or, or used it to season meat, it, it draws water out um, and into different areas. And so your body will regulate its uh, flow of chlorine in and out of different cells in order to create salt to pull water where it wants to pull water. Well, in cystic fibrosis, um, people have uh, uh, this channel, this, it's called the chloride channel of your cell. Um, and in functioning normal adults, uh, it's, it opens up and closes to let uh, chlorine in and out of your cells. In, in cystic fibrosis, depending on your mutation, because there's a lot of different ways that you can end up at cystic fibrosis um, by affecting this chloride channel. Um, but in my particular mutation, that chloride channel is in a million pieces inside my cell. Not even on the wall of my cell, it's just broken up into a million pieces. And so that means that those particular parts of my body cannot regulate water very well. And so it has a lot of side effects. Um, the most notable that you'll even hear probably during this presentation is coughing. There's a lot of coughing because my mucus, which your body can normally pull water into to keep it thin, um, it does not have enough water to be able to keep it thin, and so it's thick. And that causes a lot of coughing, it causes a lot of congestion. Um, everywhere in your body that produces mucus, so your pancreas as well, but particularly for me, a lot of the damage was done in my lungs. And so years and years of not being able to regulate that 
Um, it can create areas where infection can grow. Um, it can cause issues with, um, in your pancreas, your, you secrete enzymes to help you digest your food. I am like very, very thin, and I'm wearing as many layers as possible to hide that, but I'm kind of a tiny little man. Um, but I've got great abs because I cough a lot. So <clears throat> I have been, I was a natural, I came out of the womb with a six pack basically. Um, and so, um, and I think some of the amazing innovations that come down the line will be a little hard for me to stomach because it's like six pack or like coughing a lot, six pack, coughing a lot. And so, um, but for me, having that bacteria in my lungs created a lot of scarring. And this scarring, um, kind of like what happens with smokers as they smoke for a long time, the damage prevents your lungs from actually being able to, um, to move oxygen through your bloodstream very easily. And so I always have a very low blood, um, blood oxygen level. Um, and in fact, my medical rated like lung capacity is about 40% of what a normal human has. And uh, it starts pretty well as you're older and as you get older and as you deal more with lung damage, the percentages go down and down and down. And that's primarily the thing in my mutation that will, that will uh, cause you to die early. And as was said in the opening, I was only given 18 years to live. And that was pretty generous too at the time because there were just not a whole lot of ways to deal with this. And uh, they had chest therapies, like they're, um, I'll show you some pictures of me in the hospital, um, but there's just a lot of different ways that you can try to keep somebody as healthy as possible. But eventually the lungs are always going to start getting damaged and eventually you're going to have to have um, a lung transplant where they take your lungs out and they put some other lungs in <clears throat> that match with yours it's a you know there's a whole program for that and uh and you're you basically are on the anti-rejection uh fight for the rest of your life and and those typically last around two years so you can buy about two years of life with somebody else's lungs before your body says this is not my lungs i don't want it anymore so that was my that was my new future my outlook as soon as i was born my parents were said, uh, you know, were, were told that this is how long your son's going to live and you're going to have to spend every single day, multiple hours a day, just dedicated to keeping his lungs clear. And as I get older, I realize just how amazing my parents were for being able to take that and become as, uh, you know, to be basically be as functional as they were. I mean, they were newly married. I was um, uh, like born, my mother was 19 when she had me. She was very young. Um, and, uh, and so getting thrown in your first child now having cystic fibrosis, it was a whole different way that they had to think about their future as well as mine. And it, you know, it um, influenced a lot of the decisions that my parents made. Um, and so from an early age, I was, um, I, I was <clears throat> really neck deep in this fight um, with my family as well. They, they had to do as much as I ever did. Um, they, you know, I had to take medication enzymes that would help to me to be able to digest my food. Um, I had to do chest therapies, which are, um, I put this vest on and uh, I use a nebulizer. Um, some asthmatics will also use nebulizers as well. Um, and I had to inhale medications. I had to use this vest, which would help shake my body. And that was a relatively new invention. People thought it was so cool because before you'd have to actually manually percuss on somebody's body. My dad, who was a drummer, is basically second nature to him, but he would flip me over as a little baby and beat me. 
uh, you know, until I coughed. So, um, uh, but other than that, he wasn't abusive. It's just, just that. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I was rolled over and beaten from, from the tender young age, of, you know, uh, by my dad multiple times a day for hours at a time. Um, when you say it like that, it's kind of, yeah, kind of interesting. I should start introducing him using that from now on. This is my dad. He beat me every day of my life, you know, <laughs> for an hour a day. Yeah. Uh, and it kept me alive, yeah, <laughs> and that's why I'm here. Um, but um, I want to show you some photos, too, of just um, me at various times in my life kind of uh, working with uh, my doctors and my medical professionals. And uh, I, I spent a lot of my time in hospitals. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at some of these, too, and just kind of weirded out. Um, I had a very large head as a child. And I think it stopped growing because I also now have a very small head. So this is me with my sister um, when she was born. Um, uh, there we go. Yeah. So <laughs> off to the right in this, you, there's a little oxygen tank on the ground because I would have to be on oxygen as a child as well. Um, but despite that, I had a very cheery nature. And I attribute that to the way that my parents handled it. Um, they were both, uh, well, my, my mom was the only member of the church um, at the time, and my dad had gone to Boy Scouts as a kid uh, with one of his friends that was LDS. And uh, he likes to tell it like this, you know, he's like, I, I would have become a member earlier if someone just asked me. He's like, I, I loved it. You know, and, and he had been in the ecosystem of the church and had great church friends. And, and the second that he was taught by the missionaries, he was like, well, yeah, of course. Like, this all makes total sense to me. Um, and it's funny, too, because um, as he became a member when I was first born, um, his dad, uh, as soon as he turned 21, wanted to take him out to one of his favorite bars and get a drink with him. It's like when you know, your dad wants to just take you out and you know, is a ring in your 21st birthday with you know, a celebratory pub experience. And uh, my dad gets a Coke because he had just become a member. And my grandpa's face, the way he describes my grandpa's face, just say, Ugh, okay. I guess, I guess he's serious about this, uh, this uh, Church of Jesus Christ thing. So, um, anyway, they they had the, they were essentially standing at this precipice. You, you get your first child, who's has this horrible genetic disorder, probably going to die young. Also, going to be basically most of your time is going to be spent. Whose fault is it, right? Where do you put the blame? How do you internalize that? Uh, and also, how do, you, how do you accept that this sort of a thing can happen to somebody and also that your Heavenly Father loves you, right? And they, they were born in and just had this decision put in front of them. And my family chose to, to double down on their faith. Um, and I was the beneficiary of two wonderful parents who approached every situation that I was ever in with this optimism and this faith. And, uh, and a lot of times people will ask me, well, weren't you ever scared about this? Or didn't you ever think about this? And, and for me, I don't know, like, I used to think maybe I was just kind of blinded, right? Like I, I was being sheltered or something like that. But as I get older and I learn more about even just the way that my doctors would talk to me as I was younger, and being very straightforward about like, you're, you got to do this or you're going to die. I mean, that's always a fun experience of the doctors, right? Um, just 
why I wasn't scared as much as I maybe should have been. And it was, it was my parents and the faith that they instilled in me. And from an early age, my mom would always tell me, she would say, you were given this trial because you were somebody that could handle it. And that the Lord said that you were strong enough that you needed an extra little challenge. And I thought that was super sweet. And, uh, and I would lean back on that testimony of my mom for a really long time. And as I get older, I had, I had, I had a little addendum to that. And I don't think that I was obviously stronger and that I needed something extra. That was a really sweet way of my mother to put it. But I, I learned early on that the Lord will give you very specific challenges based on your individual needs. And for me, um, I had a lot of lessons that I was able to learn, still am learning, through the experience of having cystic fibrosis. And that once you accept that, that the Lord will give you things on purpose and that it's not an accident or, a, or uh, you know, some sort of punishment, it opens up the gateway to, to, to dissecting things, to be able to learn maybe why it is or move past that initial step. If you're stuck on a trial and your reaction is, well, this shouldn't be happening. There's no reason that this should be happening. Oh, this is so stupid. Um, even things that you inflict upon yourselves, the, the Lord knows exactly what you're going to do to yourself and can structure it in a way that will help to teach you what you need to know. And so if I, you know, by saying, okay, what can I learn from this? What is it trying to teach me? What can I get out of it? Um, I was able to approach trials and, and issues that happened to me with uh, being able to move past that to the next step and being able to actually learn from the things that happen to us. And so packaging that as a principle, right? When things bad are bad and, and things happen to you in your life that maybe feel unfair, if you look at it from a different perspective of what could I have done to avoid this problem? Okay, we figured that out. Now what can I learn from it now that it's happened? And we're willing to move there there, the Lord can teach us some amazing things. And, uh, and through cystic fibrosis, I've been able to learn that. And, and possibly one of the biggest things that I grappled with growing up was that I had a brother with cystic fibrosis also. If any of you guys know Keaton Haskell, he's also, I mean, he's basically a celebrity, in my life at least. I, um, but uh, a lot of people know him. But he, he literally looks like Thor. And maybe I'll find a photo to show you guys, but he is probably like, Four, three or four inches taller than me, seriously, completely ripped. It has the same kind of body as like a Marvel superhero. Um, and he has cystic fibrosis too. In fact, the same exact mutation that I have, he has. But for whatever reason, he never, well, I'm, I wouldn't say never because he used to, but, but he didn't have issues the same way that I did. Uh, he was able to gain weight. He's actually pretty overweight right now for, for what a CF person should be. Um, he's probably around... I think 190 right now. So he's, he's a pretty big dude. Some people think that they need to cut at that point, but he's actually, he's trying to prove to one of his doctors that he could get to 210. Because they, they laughed at him when he said, oh, he's like, yeah, I'm going to be at 210. And he's like, all right, Keaton, that's great. Cool, cool. Well, no, you're doing good as you are. And so he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show him what's what. And so he's been taking, he's been documenting his journey to try to get there. And, and he's gained probably about 20 pounds since he started and he's going to do it and his doctor's going to be just blown away. But, uh, but that was always uh, not, uh, that was a different challenge for him. And, and his lungs also equally didn't have the same problem that mine did. And uh, his lung function 
right now is sitting uh, over 100%, not just for people with CF, but for people in general, like a normal human. He has about 2 or 3% more lung capacity than the average person his height, weight, age. Um, and so looking at that and going, well, how could, how could I be sitting here in the 40s and he there? Um, not to mention that, but one of the most frustrating things is he would never do his therapies when we were younger. He just would kind of like blow them off. And I never understood why he could do nothing, be amazing, and I could be basically like barely treading water in my own body trying to, to stay as healthy as possible. And, and that was, for, and for normal people, I think they would see that as another opportunity to call their life unfair, right? Well, I had to struggle with this and he didn't have to, and, and it's just not fair, and this is just God punishing me, or this is just something, you know, that's, you know, that completely shouldn't be happening. But I never had that issue. I loved the fact, and I still do, I love the fact that my brother is where he's at physically. Um, and I've, the, kind of the roles are reversed as we get older. I've been able to look up to him and the things that he does um, and the things that he pushes me to do. Uh, but I don't think that I would be able to have that same relationship or perspective had I gone, oh, well, obviously this is just, you know, something that's, you know, that's completely unfair and just seeing that as a complete negative. Um, that experience and the differences of our experiences have been custom made for our lives. Um, and, and for us, it is very obvious how custom they have been. And, and I think the same applies to each of us, is there are very specific things that happen in our lives that are meant to, to pull the right things out of us. So fast forward years and years of me, you know, kind of fighting with cystic fibrosis, new, new awesome innovations have been coming out and uh, I'm getting older and I, I get past 18 and uh, I really, really wanted to serve a mission. Like I, I had never put that as a limit on my mind. Because I have CF, I can't serve a mission. And you hear great stories about people all over the place who, you know, who serve a mission handicapped, right? Or, or people who have other disabilities and they, they serve some sort of adapted mission. So I, I made that a goal that I really, really wanted to do that. Um, I was gonna hold myself to what I felt was uh, the expectation that a normal person would have. And so let me show you a, a picture here too of me actually out on my mission. This is me, baby face Kim. I, I also love Japan and Japanese culture. I know that spam musubi is more Hawaiian, but I, I would make just the weirdest food and my, my mission companions would just kind of be weirded out. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here in the kitchen, Albuquerque, New Mexico is where I got to serve my mission. Um, you can see my pill container right here. I was very organized. Probably the, the most strict about my health that I've ever been in my entire life was on my mission. And, uh, and for whatever reason, it also started to be where my body plateaued and started to go downward. Um, I developed um, a, uh, an issue with um, my pancreas where my insulin production started to be staggered. Um, uh, for whatever reason, I was getting very high blood sugars two hours after I would eat. At one hour, it was fine. Two hours, it was weird. So my body was like weird, oddly cycling my insulin. And in the middle of my mission, my doctor said, you need to start taking insulin. We need to, you're like, basically, we need to count your carbs just like a, someone with normal diabetes would do. And you need to start taking insulin to supplement that. And my mission president at the time was like, whoa, starting insulin on a mission, that's not good. Go home. 
And so I, I took a break. My parents call it my, my mission spring break. And I, <laughs> I went home and uh, I kept all my same mission rules and, and stayed at home and I, I kind of got adjusted to insulin for a little bit and then I went back out on my mission. And, uh, and I, uh, I just couldn't keep my, my body back in good shape. I was doing all my therapies, was taking all my meds, and I still kept getting sick. And I, I remember thinking, like, like, I'm doing the best that I've ever done in my entire life. Why is this so hard for me? And uh, I went to the doctors, and I said, I just, I'm getting really tired. And they said, well, you know what? You should probably, you should probably take a nap in the middle of the day for about an hour. Um, you're out, you're walking around a lot, you're proselyting. Take a nap in the middle of the day, and then... Um, yeah, and then you can go back out, and maybe that'll kind of help take the stress off of your body. And um, I brought that up to my mission president. I said, yeah, they kind of want me to take a nap in the middle of the day. Didn't think that was a big deal, but for him it was, oh, well, whenever a missionary has to take significant time out of their mission schedule to accommodate for their health, we start wondering, should they be on a mission or not? And as soon as I heard that, I was like, well, I, I don't need to. It was just a suggestion, right? So I just kind of let that go by, and... Um, and unfortunately, that sort of high pace caught up to me. And uh, I ended up in the hospital on my mission um, needing antibiotics. And whenever I go into the hospital, basically what they do is they have to take a needle and they have to stick it in one of my larger veins. They have to feed a tube up to my heart and then use that to give me medicine. They call it a, a pick line or depending on where they put it, an IJ. Um, and uh, this because the antibiotics that it takes to fight my infections, having, I mean, this is, you know, me at 21 years of taking antibiotics, like multiple times a week, heavy doses, your body really gets a adjusted to it. And it can't handle these big amounts of, of uh, antibiotics orally. You have to do it through the vein. And it's so strong that you can't just put it in any smaller vein because it will literally disintegrate your veins. So they have to put it straight into your heart so that it disperses and dilutes fast enough for your body to take it. So I'm in there, you know, for a couple of, uh, probably about two weeks that I had to do that. And I would go on splits. This is my, my missionary companion at the time, um, Elder Heslop. And uh, he, uh, he would go on splits with other missionaries so that he could go out and continue to do his work. But um, for me, that, this, was, this was where my mission was going to end. Um, and I remember laying in the hospital bed, just looking at the ceiling, thinking uh, of well, what did I, what did I do to be here? Like, wh what exactly is my purpose being on a mission? If if I'm going to come, talk to a couple of people, and then leave. Um, as you're growing up, and as you think about your mission, and as people tell you about how amazing the experiences are going to be, I think we come with a certain expectation of here's what I'm supposed to go and do. And here's the change that I can expect to make in myself and also in the lives of other people. And there's a certain standard that we set for ourselves in that category. Um, and for me, it seemed like a completely wasted opportunity. Um, but I also, I, I was struggling with this idea that I was in here because my mission president said that I couldn't take a nap in the middle of the day and it's his fault, right? Part of me wanted to blame him for where I was at. Um, and it's and because I was thinking about all these other missions and people who'd gone on missions and they were allowed to wildly adapt their schedule to be able to do it, and um, and so I was like, well, why can't we just do that? Like, why can't I can't I get it, it adjusted somehow? So um, 
as I'm grappling with these, I recovered, made a full recovery, went home, and, uh, and my mission president released me and, and said, we're not going to recall you on your mission. This is an honorable release. So you're done. And I remember sitting there at the end of it, and one of the many times in my life where a big burden is lifted off of you, and you just go, oh, now what? right? Like what? My whole life was building to this. This is whenever I had problems with things or I was thinking about what I was going to do with my future, it was always, well, there's a mission before I have to worry about all of that, right? It can be my mission first and then I'll figure other stuff out. So it was completely like uh, kind of like earth shattering to have this experience, but also like have it end in a way that I didn't feel exactly like I understood. Um, and it would take a long time before I would realize just how individual my mission was for me, um, the things that it still allows me to do, but also that it, it was able to affect my life, the people on my mission, but also learning that a lot of uh, my brother Keaton's testimony came from the experiences that I had while I was on my mission. And these things you can never understand in the moment. But the entire reason that my brother went on a mission was because I came back early and I was able to spend that time with him. And I was, I still had my greeny fire going and I was like, you've got to get ready for this and, and you've got to get serious about it. And Keaton completely turned from being apathetic about the gospel to now being my rock, testimony-wise, of just somebody that I really look up to. And, and if we live our lives expecting those things to be known to us in the moment that things are happening, it will severely limit the Lord's ability to change your life. Um, had I said, I'm not going to leave this mission until the Lord tells me why I'm going home early, right? Like there's so much good that could not have happened in my life or my brother's life because of that. Um, and it would open up this next part of my life that was where CF started to become a real issue for me. Um, before I had lived on my own, before I'd become an adult, cystic fibrosis was able to be managed by other people in my life. My mom was able to pick up some of the slack, get all the medication ready, hand it to me. All I had to do was take it. Or all I had to do was plug in, play a video game, call it good. Um, but now I entered into this where I was starting to become an adult. I wanted autonomy. Um, and so I had to start taking these on for myself. Um, and on top of that, this was also where my body was really starting to take a, a downward spiral where little issues or little missed medication that I would take um, would have consequences for days after. I would miss a therapy and I would be out of commission for a while. It made it very difficult to hold a normal job. Um, it made it very difficult to go to school at the same level as other people. And what seemed like um, something that I could just kind of push my way through, like, um, like high school had been and my elementary school experience had been to that point where I could just kind of like deal with it, um, it wasn't, it, it wasn't going to happen anymore. And I had to severely adapt the way that I lived in order to accommodate my cystic fibrosis. And it became very, very uncomfortable for me, very, very difficult. And, uh, and it started to infect other parts of my life that were probably the hardest. Um, and for me, um, dating was a huge, like, I grew up with two, two parents that were like known by everyone who, who uh, came into contact with them as like the, like just this sweetheart couple. Like everyone noticed the way that my dad treated my mom and the way my mom treated my dad, when, even when they were in public. And it would be annoying to some people, but for others, like it would be like the shining example of that's what I want to be when I get married or that's how my wife and I should be. 
Like there were articles written about my parents and the, the little things that they would do for each other. They had a closet with this vinyl sticker above it that said the kissing closet. And uh, my dad, like once a day at least, would make a joke um, with my mom where he's like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Let's, we'll just be one second. And go into the kissing closet and everyone's like, oh, dad, oh my gosh. <laughs> right, dude, when people were over. And so they were just this lovey-dovey couple. And I, I grew up wanting that more than anything because I saw the strength that they gave each other. And I, I noticed that that was the next thing for me in my life. And so I had tried very hard to, you know, to have fun on dates in high school. For me, dates in high school were, were testimony building experiences because of how difficult they were. Um, it was not a time to, to have fun and, and you know, uh, form lasting bonds or anything like that. It was like, it was the gauntlet for me. Like, planning a date, going on the date, coming back, and, and uh, you know, surviving the experience. And so I knew that like casual dating is never my style. Um, and, uh, and a lot of other people knew that because there are some people who just would not go on dates with me because they knew that I was serious. Like I'm, I'm dating somebody because I'm like, let's figure this out. And that was very intimidating for people. <laughs> but I also, I felt I had a little bit of a different timeline because of my situation. Um, but I, I never really internalized how other people would think about that, right? And so I would get to, to points in dating people where we'd get to second or third date or we'd be really good friends and they'd learn more about me and about um, cystic fibrosis. And then all of a sudden they'd just drop off the map and I had no idea what was going on. Um, and I, sincerely, because I, I didn't think about it until later, just the, the process that someone has to go through to, to fall in love with somebody who does not know what his end game is gonna be. Um, and for a lot of people, like there's a lot of resources out there that will get you scared to death about cystic fibrosis. If you learn about it from Wiki, man, like, yeah, that's, that, that'll scare you. Um, <clears throat> and there's a lot of um, medical innovations that are only here in America that uh, drastically change the way that CF operates and the way that you handle it. That you go to Wiki and you have to get the global version of what CF is, and that is countries where they don't know how to deal with it. Japan has like maybe two or three people with cystic fibrosis, and they're, it's because they're non-native. They, it's just not a gene mutation that they have in their gene pool. And so, um, and the way that Japan works is their medications are not allowed to be approved unless they've gone through their own personal studies. And how do you do big studies on three people? And so there's just no availability for medications in other places. And so it will make CF look even worse. I mean, it looks bad by itself, but even worse if you look at it from a global perspective. And so I, I started to realize the older that I got that maybe this was the barrier that people kept hitting. And some of the hardest experiences of my life were having these, these girls that I, you know, that I would form a very close connection with over a long period of time. And I like, they would drop off the face of the earth and I had no idea what was going on. And so finally I just kind of like had it. There's a couple of girls that I snapped on, not like angry snaps, but I was like, all right, let's talk. Like what's going on here? Like you, you were really interested. Um, you know, we, um, we had a good time. We almost made out. That was cool. But like, <laughs> but like, what, like, where, where'd you go? What are we doing? And it would, they would never talk about CF. It was always, well, I thought I liked you as a friend and then I liked you as more a friend, but now I realize I was just a friend. And, and also I'm, I'm moving away to go to school somewhere else. So <laughs> it was something in there that, and I was very, very frustrated by it. And, um, and so 
those experiences in particular made me feel a different way about CF that I'd never felt before about it, and that was this optimism, um, uh, naive optimism from my youth that, I, you know, in my mind I'm thinking this must have been some naive deal. It, it started to become more inconvenient on the things that were very important to my life, and then that's when it became real for me. And, and my adult years of struggling with cystic fibrosis were way more formative. And uh, it was another one of those things where had I been on my mission and had I been worrying about that, um, I wouldn't have come face to face with this until like it might have been too late at that point where uh, there were some very important things that I needed to learn, breakups that needed to happen. And um, for me to, to start to approach with more reverence, I guess, the things that I was dealing with and see them for what they actually were. So I'm uh, fast forward to what was three years ago, um, and I met this smoking hottie who wandered into my ward down here. Um, I used to be the elders quorum president at the uh, YSA second ward. I was, was it was fourth ward? Am I fourth ward? He was my, uh, <laughs> he was in my elders quorum presidency, so <laughs> he knows. Um, so, jeez, uh, it's been that long. But uh, anyway, so she wanders in and uh, tries to leave early uh, after sacrament. And as an elders quorum president, I could not stand and let that happen. Uh, so I, as soon as I started, I, I saw her start walking out. This is, I'll find a better picture. It's a little more romantic than us in a mask. But um, yeah, so as, as we, uh, <laughs> as she's tried to leave, I, I approached her and I said, hey, so, uh, you guys look new. Where are you headed to off to? And like, oh, well, we got a head to a, a different ward, very clearly ward hopping. And uh, I said, well, if you're looking for the classroom, um, it's right this way. And I escorted them to the Sunday school class and, uh, and sat next to her. And I was the most enthusiastic about the gospel that I had ever been <laughs> to that point in my life. I, uh, there was a lesson where they were talking about girding your loins. And uh, people were like, what does that exactly mean? And I was like, I'll show you what it means. And so I raised my hand and I said, hey, so basically what they would do when they would gird their loins is, I was flexing, standing up next to her. And I was like, yeah, you got to wrap the, wrap the towel around and, you know, <laughs> towel, wrap your robe around. They'd actually like hike it up and tie it around. And, that, you know, that's how you gird your loins. And uh, it felt like pretty impressive knowledge for me, and it was probably very embarrassing. But um, anyway, it got me another conversation with her, which was great. And so after that, I, uh, I said, hey, so some friends and I are going to go see the new uh, Thor movie this week. No, there was no plan to do that. I made this up on the spot. And you guys who've tried to set up dates know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, okay, what can I do that's very, I could get a, assemble a group of people together for a group date very quickly. And so I said, yeah, we're going to go see it on this Friday. You want to come? And she's like, yeah, yeah, totally. And I'm like, well, if I had your number, I could probably, you know, help coordinate that a little bit better. And so um, I got it. I got the number. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, she agreed to go on a date with me. And then a couple days later, um, I got the, uh, the text that every man dreads. Um, yeah, so I'm not going to be able to make it this Friday, but um, you th I would thank you so much for inviting me. And, you know, I hope you have a good life, basically. I don't know. 
she, you know, uh, but that's how I took it. I was like, all right, this has happened like a bajillion times. Um, I'm not just going to like roll over. I'm going to try to get the reason out of this. And so I was like, okay, well, if this just a won't work for you, then uh, well, what do you do in the next week? I was, you know, my friend wanted to put together a double date and I don't have anybody, but you want to come. And this is normally when you can call them out, but she evidently really did have something going on that Friday and or some reason. And uh, she wouldn't tell me about why later until later after we worked out. But um, I was able to set up a follow-up date with her. I was able to blow it out of the park. Evidently, the thing that she thought was attractive was just dudes talking to her and uh, about stuff that she wanted to talk about. Um, and I was really good at that. I'm like, I, I'm really good at talking about whatever. So, um, and if I'd have known it was that easy, man, I could have been married so long ago. But um, uh, anyway, the, uh, the date went amazing and we scheduled a follow-up date. We had two dates and uh, the second one, she was very clearly going to hold my hand. But uh, I learned from watching, I think, Hitch or something like that, um, that you can't make it too easy, right? And so I, I, like, I saw very clearly that her hand was very close to mine, it was begging me to reach out and hold her hand. And I extend my hand, stretch back, stretch this way, and then I keep it there. And uh, <laughs> keep my distance. Got to keep them wanting, you know. So, and it worked because she very much wanted another date. So I was like, all right, well, after Christmas, let's do something, you know, like I'll get you like a present or whatever and, you know, something basic and we'll just do like a movie night. And so um, we're texting back and forth at this point and then... I will never let her live this down. Christmas Eve, she texts me, and in yet another thing that uh, it's like a guy's worst nightmare is when you get a message and you can see that it says, read more. <laughs> and you know that there's probably a lot more written in it, and you can't just look at it at a glance. Hey, I've had so much fun in there. Blah, 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 blah. Read more. Oh, oh boy, this is going to be something big. <laughs> I don't want to read this right now. And so I was like, ah, I better just get it over with. So I opened it up, and it's text bomb, right, of just all this, ah, oh, you're an amazing person, I love you, friend, blah, 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 and uh, I'm afraid that we just can't go out anymore, and I'm sorry, and uh, I hope we can still be friends. <laughs> I was like, what the heck? Where did that come from? Um, but I was really used to it at this point, and like I said, I was a little bit embittered by the date game, and so I was like, um, that's not, I, I, I had two ways I could go with it. I could either be like, all right, I'm going to fight for this, or I'm just going to give up, and at that point, I was like, I just, I'm just, I'll give up. Okay, cool, whatever. And my sister um, was at, I mean, obviously it's Christmas Eve and now I'm very depressed and nobody knows what, exactly what happened. And my sister asked, she's like, so what, what happened? And, uh, and I said, oh, I just got this really dumb text. And she's like, you really like her though, right? I was like, yeah, obviously. And she's like, well, fight for it. Like tell her that you want to try to make it work. And I was like, all right, whatever. So I handed her the phone and I said, you just text whatever a girl would like and then <laughs> hand it back to me. <laughs> and she did. And then it prompted a phone conversation where I went up and hid in my parents' bathroom and talked to her for like 30 minutes. But, uh, but it was exactly what I had expected at that point. And that was, I did some reading about cystic fibrosis and it's kind of a big deal. This is a, some big stuff. And so I got to a point where nobody else would get to me at, which is where they would run the information that they had received through the filter of my personal experience. And uh, she was like, well, I read this, and I read this, and I read this. And um, I was like, 
it's true. And at the time, because of the, the, you know, the kind of advancements that had been happening, I think the life expectancy was right about 35. And, uh, and you know, I'm there at 23. Um, tw- how old is it? No, I'm, I barely missed the 25 and up group activities because I got married just before that. So I was 24. Um, <laughs> I love that's how I did it. We, we high-five each other every once in a while. We're like, we made it past that one middle mark. So we were able to get in there early. But uh, uh, she would actually go to the 25 and up activities because the people there were actually more interested in really dating. So it's funny. But um, anyway, so 24, like, and she's looking at this thing that says I have another 10 years or so. And uh, my body, too, I knew which end of the spectrum I was at at that point. I was like not feeling very good about my future. Um, I said... Um, yeah, I mean, the life expectancy is about 35, but it was 18 when I was born, and it'll probably be a little bit higher, and wasn't super encouraging. And there were people in her family that were not very keen on, um, like, just putting her through the ringer on that. Like, they knew what sort of an experience that was going to be, and so she had some pressure from people that she knew and who, who just were not, um, not too excited about her dating somebody that would, would shackle her to a lot of work. And it was. It was a lot of work. And I don't give people credit for, you know, uh, nearly as much as they should. Because um, when you're born with it and you deal with it, it's like, oh, well, yeah, of course. It's, well, I just got to do that. But for people who come into it new, you know, like my parents were when I was born, it's, it's, you know, jumping in the deep end of the pool. So for her, that was what I was, you know, experiencing was that she just jumped into the deep end and that she didn't know what she was going to do. And, and a lot of times your first reaction when something like that happens is to just get out as quickly as possible. And, uh, and that's what had happened. That's what the text was about. So we got to talk about it. She said, all right, I'm more interested. And uh, <laughs> I mean, that's not how she said it. All right, you passed the test, right? <laughs> all right. Um, I-, I won't give you another date, but you better kiss me, but, um, which I did. But she didn't make that as a you know, uh, prerequisite. Anyway, so next week comes. Um, I, I really ramp up the... Uh, the charm by playing uh, a Spirited Away, the Studio Ghibli movie. Um, for her, never having watched anime before, totally weirded her out. She's like, what was that? And uh, so maybe not the best. I probably should have gone with something a little more romantic. But uh, anyway, but it was enough to, to secure another date and another date. And, and then it, eventually we were very serious and started marriage started to enter the topic of our conversation a lot. And uh, I had never gotten to that point with some, well, I go, that's another fun story, but uh, this was the second time I'd approached it, and this time it was real, so it was difficult for me to go through, um, and uh, I, was, I was experiencing CF in a whole new pair of eyes, right? How does somebody else handle it? And, um, and to me, this is why she's probably the the most, next to my mom, she's one of the most powerful spiritual people in my life because of how she was able to take that information. Um, and uh, so she, despite all of her, um, you know, her reservations, um, we just grew to love each other more than, than that barrier presented for us. And when it came time to propose, it was a very easy conversation. Like it, <laughs> I think for a lot of LDS people, or maybe a lot of people in general, the proposal is just a series of conversations, and the actual event is just a formality. 
and that's how it was for us. Like we, we really grew to understand each other and, and love each other. And, um, and for us, it was understanding the baggage that each had and saying, well, I can help you with that. You, you can help me with this. Well, let's do this thing. So we, uh, we got engaged and we got married. And, um, and I had been pretty healthy up to this point. But as I said and alluded to earlier, like my, my life just started to get more difficult with cystic fibrosis. And uh, very shortly after we got married, um, let's see here, <laughs> we, uh, we ended up, oh, this ruins the emotional climax, there we go. <laughs> All right, so we ended up uh, in the hospital again, and I'll go into the hospital once or twice a year, and at that point it was getting more frequent. I was a, the year before this, I'd gone in three times, and it's never a good sign when your body can't handle being healthy long enough. And whenever I go into the hospital, it's two weeks, pretty much minimum, of sitting in a hospital, not being able to leave. You're basically on a tether the whole time, and um, and she was along for the ride, and. You can't see it on her face in that, but she is completely overwhelmed. <laughs> but she also loved me. But uh, as we started to face this, like she had her own moment of this is actually real. Like this is my my husband's going through this, and what am I going to do about it? And she had a lot of opportunity and a lot of pressure to to abandon the marriage um, after we got married, um, and in ways that I didn't even know as I was struggling with a lot of this until a little bit later. But she consistently chose me. Um, and for that reason, she's an example of not only what it means to be a good spouse, but also what it means to be a good follower of Christ. Um, as these hard things happen in our lives, consistently choosing to go back uh, and to stay true to the, the people that you love and, and for me to stay true to my faith, um, it's she's continues to impress me every day that she does that, um, and uh, it reminds me of of a scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants, um, speaking specifically um, about what 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 the difference between the the three kingdoms are. Uh, I remember my dad when I was younger said, "I just feel like you should read this really quickly." I've just I know you've probably read it in your stuff, but I just feel like you need to read it, and. Uh, it's one of the most shaping scriptures of my life because of it. Um, and, and specifically when it's, it's speaking, I think this is 122 or 128, um, there's a scripture talking about the celestial kingdom and the people that will inhabit that. And one of the ways that they're described is whosoever loves and makes a lie. And I've thought about that for a really long time. And for me, the essence of that is an integrity. Right? Can the Lord show you the truth? And then can you jump into something that's uncertain that makes you perhaps question it? And can you still be true to what the Lord said was the truth? And the ability to hold true to something in the face of uncertainty is a very defining characteristic of people in kingdoms afterwards. And for those in the celestial kingdom, they can be exposed to the purest absolute truth but then Satan whispers in their ear and suddenly they'll do something completely different. And Laman and Lemuel are in the, the Book of Mormon are exactly the example of that, where they can have a vision, they can see an angel, they can be around probably the most spiritually strong individuals that have ever walked the earth, and 
as soon as things get too easy or too difficult, they go away from the truth. Um, and my wife is an example of somebody that's been able to hold true to that love um, in a way that's very spiritually strengthening for me. So now we get to the part of my life that was the most difficult, but also the most amazing, and that is I had a miracle happen in my life. Um, and in my, and I share this part of my patriarchal blessing because I feel like it was for everybody else instead of me. But um, uh, I was told that I needed to stay true to my faith because miracles still happen to this day. Um, and uh, in a way that very much implied that I would be the recipient of some sort of miracle. And uh, for me, it came in the form of, uh, let's see here, three little pills um, and a medication called Trikafta. Now, this is an amazing medication. It's a product of decades and decades of scientific breakthroughs. Um, and wonderful, um, uh, wonderful people working in their health, like in the healthcare system in general. Um, but essentially, what this medication does is that chloride channel that I talked to you about earlier. One medication takes all of those pieces and puts them back together. Somehow, it takes all these assembled, broken parts of your chloride channel and puts them back together. The second medication places it on your cell wall, and then the third medication holds it open and allows chlorine to pass in and out. And there hadn't been anything that did, there, there were some medications that worked for other mutations, ones where people's chloride channels were just kind of like slightly shut and it caused a lot of the same symptoms but it was never as difficult to manage. But for me, what should have been the most difficult situation, how do you put cellular pieces back together and you know, and put them back on your cell wall and basically fix a, like the chloride channel, how do you do that with medicine? Like it's amazing, it's a miracle, right? And I, I started taking this medication and it completely changed my life. Um, this was one of the darkest periods of my life where I had, I had gotten to the very end. And there's some very hideous pictures of me that you can see in a hospital a little bit later. Um, where I was literally staring at death and I was having conversations with my doctors about lung transplants. And I, I was kind of at the end where I, I had reached as much as my physical body could take and I was about to step into another temporary situation and I was gonna die and that was it. And I had to, I had to come to terms with all of that. Um, but the closer I got to death, and like these conversations, the more I felt at peace. I felt like my life and the struggles that I had been through, like this was all things that I needed to face. And I, as hard as it was gonna be for the people around me and as hard as my, you know, for my new family basically, um, that, uh, that things were going to happen the way that they were supposed to happen. And that's the only, that's the only spiritual advice that I would ever get. And it was frustrating. It was just like I said earlier with the mission where you don't know exactly what's going to change or, or how things are going to be for your benefit until a little bit later. And for me at that moment, I was in the same situation where I, I was able to, to look back at my life and the things that I'd experienced and realize how they'd worked together for my good. And, um, and I had to go through that whole process of 
dying mentally before my body died and figuring out how I was going to deal with that and be okay with it. And at that moment, literally within two months of what felt like actual death, one of my doctors said, there's this medication coming on the pipeline and you've got, we got to get you approved for a study. We got to get you on it somehow. Like it's, you won't even believe what it does. And, uh, and people started talking about it and I started looking at some of the research and my doctors started sharing it with me and trying to be cautiously optimistic because there's a lot of studies that try to promise the same things. Um, and I'd gone through a lot of those in my life. I'd been on studies of medications that were supposed to change everything and they did nothing. Um, and so being cautiously optimistic, but this time it was the real deal. And this medication does everything and more. Um, for people who start taking this medication from the age of two, which I think is the approved age right now, they will have no cystic fibrosis complications their entire life, period. None of the struggles that I went through, like none of the life expectancy issues, none of the conversations, the doctor's visits, the hospitalizations, the, the everything, like they could avoid all of that just by this medication. And, and I couldn't believe it. I had to get on it. And I started taking it in November, which was a couple months after my, my last hospitalization. And I, I went a while afterwards not taking any other medication because I wanted to, like, I, I, was, I was so convinced of the power of this medication that I, I was just like, well, what happens if I don't do anything? It sucks. And for me, with lung scarring, you shouldn't do it. And so I've gone back on some of my medications. But I was able to completely be functional at a level that I hadn't been in years. And it's not going to automatically take my lung percentage and, and fix all of the scarring in my lungs. I'm, I'm with that my entire life. And I'll, I will forever do certain medications um, and therapies because of that. But the amazing things that have come out of this for me and also for other people have just been revolutionary. And I can't, I can't stress enough how much of a miracle that is for me um, and for my wife too. Like looking at it now, it seems so like easy to, to say, well, eventually that medication was going to happen and, and everything was going to be all right. And so you're worried about nothing, you stupid, right? And, uh, but for me, like it very much feels like waking up from a bad dream where, and, and, <laughs> and because of the oxygen deprivation too of uh, living CF at the very edge of my limits, like taking a little bit less than, you know, a normal, like I was probably about somewhere between early 90s oxygen saturation for long periods of time. And you almost start to feel like you're fading in and out of existence at that point. And so coming out of that sleep into this fully vibrant life that I have right now has just been, it seriously feels like waking up, but it, it, it asks the next question for me. Like I was so much with cystic fibrosis what do I do now, right? What's the next step for me? Um, how do I take the faith and the lessons that I've learned and move them into the next part of my life? And I will spend the rest of it trying to figure out exactly what to do with that. But um, I'm a living testament that the Lord will use very individual and personal experiences to teach you the things that you need to know to learn um, in order to become more like our Savior Jesus Christ. They will not seem fair, 100%. It's a guarantee. They're not going to seem fair. Um, they're going to seem pointless at times. And like 
in order, you know, in our own understanding, we'll think, well, I could have learned the same thing a different way or, or through some other means. But there is a plan for each of us. Um, and as we choose to approach our life with that in mind, as we think about the situations that we come into with that in mind, like the Lord can use those to teach us things rather than for it to suck us down into the depths of despair. And uh, I leave my testimony with you guys that we have a prophet. We have a prophet today, President Nelson. Um, I have a very deep love for him and a very personal testimony that, that he is the one who's in charge of our church. And that unfortunately a lot of the same, like, uh, a lot of the same issues that we've seen other prophets face, the, the way that people treat him and his commandments for our church, the, the things that he's asked us to do as members, you know, uh, as particularly around the COVID pandemic, like they don't seem, they, they're completely ununderstandable. And I, I, I think it's pretty much guaranteed that that's how they're supposed to be, right? Sometimes we will not understand why a prophet does something or asks us to do certain things, but, but faith, through faith, we can, we can take the step past grief and we can start to, to deconstruct it and learn things that, that God wants us to learn. So I leave that with you guys in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.